Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. All right. What if inflation runs hot? You know, that's, what that's if? a good question. What if? Um, welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us today. We've got my co-host and co-conspirator, Rod Gordillo, and none other than Jam Carson, who I've really been looking forward to having on the show for some time. Uh, cheers, everybody. And Cheers to risk uh, management and risk CDIF. managers. Mm-hmm. Finally coming to uh, to the rescue. Hopefully. Cheers, clerks, though. The margin clerks haven't yet had their day, I think. You know, we're, we're a long way away from the margin clerks having, having their fun. Um, so uh, before we get going, just to let everyone know that um, this is for in, uh, entertainment purposes only and nothing that we talk about today should be considered advice in any way. Um, so with that out of the way, Jen, let's just start with the softball. What is the dollar gamma neutral price for June quarterly SBX expiry. <laughs> oh, don't make me, you know, I've already turned off for the day, please. Uh, no, uh, yeah, no, I, um, I'll start off by kind of giving you guys a little background on me. How about, yeah. how about we start there and, yes. uh, and we dive sure. in. Um, so uh, I ran a market making firm. I'll, I'll, I'll start there, uh, you know, starting um, in 2006. Um, became one of the biggest equity index vol market-making groups um, uh, here domestically. We were 13% of the S&P 500 volume at our peak um, uh, during the GFC. Um, got out of that business in 2010. Um, I had the majority of my net worth in it and, and decided it was time to step away, um, but couldn't stay away for long. 
ultimately started my own uh, family office and ultimately um, a set of hedge funds. Um, and these are, we have three now non-correlated hedge funds uh, here at Kai Volatility, which is the name of our asset management firm. Uh, one is Long Vol, which uh, you're pretty happy about today. Uh, you know, a, a vol neutral relative value, which is again, non-correlated. So not a bad environment for that. Um, and then dealer flow, which is something that I've gotten to be very well known for, which is really tracking dealer positioning broadly um, in equity vol um, and using that for predictive uh, distribution um, of outcomes and, and you know, directionally trading vol and market direction based on that dealer positioning. Yeah, that's a that's great background. And we chatted um, just briefly before the show, and, and I mentioned that I was personally very curious about what someone in your capacity that runs money the way you do, what does a day like today look like activity-wise? What are you watching? Um, what kind of trades are you are you hoping to be able to place on, or are you are you looking at more closely than usual? Would this be a better than average day um, expectancy-wise for you? Um, just a little bit of color on your day-to-day activities and what a day like today might look like. Yeah, so we're very quantitative and you know fairly algorithmic in our approach. I would say uh, sixty to seventy percent algorithmic, and and uh, you know the rest discretionary. Um, that's kind of a random number I'm throwing at you, but but primarily um, algorithmic in our approach. Um, three different strategies. Uh, I'll start with a long vol and vol neutral. Those two are relative value vol arb strategies. The difference between the two is vol neutral is neutral. Vol, skew, delta, all the first order Greeks, very much looking for relative value opportunity. Uh, whereas the long vol is really biased to a, a range of long convexity, long vol, but still relative value. And that relative value pays for kind of your, uh, your risk premium over time. And uh, you get the benefit of that on days like today. Uh, so we have a, a, a expected um, you know, historically a positive expectancy in our long ball, which is very hard to do. Um, you know, uh, historically we've had, you know, great success with that. Um, and, but, but again, it comes in more, more in bunches and this has been a great environment for that, obviously. Um, even though long ball has underperformed as an asset class relative, uh, to market move, um, you know, the short bias nature has definitely been helpful for us. Um, and then relative value, um, is completely non-correlated. Um, and historically, that does on the first big move, you know, spreads blow out and it's, it's correlated with liquidity. So you might have, uh, you know, less positive performance on, on a big move down um, at first, but broadly, secularly on an annual basis, those strategies do very well when spreads blow out and when there's more opportunity. I kind of, uh, you know, explain it as it's akin to a market making type of operation, right? It's counter cyclical. That doesn't mean you're going to make money on a big down move per se. But, uh, you know, relative spread opportunities increase uh, secularly. Um, and that, that's what the role that really plays. It's a non-correlated um, relative value type uh, vol trading strategy. And then we have, uh, you know, those are both relative values. So the capacity is low. They're high gross, low net leverage uh, strategies. Um, whereas the dealer flow is a much more directional net position strategy, lower gross. And that's much more dynamic, predictive, uh, looking at distributions of outcomes um, generally, our distributions are drawn weekly with daily uh, path, um, and rebalance happens every you know with predetermined rebalance points. That re- rebalance happens about every three days or so. Um, but we are intraday on um, bigger moves like today, rebalancing much more often, uh, deleveraging, leveraging, and rehedging. Uh, and there's logic embedded for a lot of that, um, you know, to the distributions that we model. So as you might imagine, there's a lot of trades going on in the background. 
a lot of models kind of rebalancing things happening, but there's also some discretionary elements where, you know, myself and the other portfolio managers are um, deciding when another strategy uh, over comes in terms of profitability. Uh, you know, we have the discretion to say, okay, look, we've hit a point where there's a better opportunity set. Maybe we take our profit and roll to the new strategy or maybe we rebalance. And uh, there's also a timing element to execution. Some of our execution is not all automated because in a liquid market, you don't want to just be firing everything into the market. So there's some, uh, you know, uh, some execution discretion that, that happens there as well. So, you know, we're definitely, you know, hands-on in there, um, you know, especially on days like today, uh, very active, uh, you know, quite a bit of trading going on. Uh, but in terms of full rebalancing the strategies and and, pre- and rebalance points, a lot of, you know, most of that is predetermined. So that makes uh, the decision-making often much easier. You get to kind of just sit back and, and let things work uh, to a great extent, um, uh, you know, especially when things are a bit calmer, uh, that tends to be the case. I would imagine that the dealer flow strategy would be um, more active at different times of the month and the quarter, just as we approach expiries. I guess the the um, the gammas light up, the vegas begin to decay more quickly. Things all kind of get more um, more sort of in in tighter ranges and more explosive. Um, is there some kind of weekly and monthly and quarterly kind of seasonality to activity in that strategy, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. So there's two factors to when dealer flow is more important. Broadly, just backing up from 30,000 feet, if you've been in a trend of some kind, and a trend doesn't mean up or down, it could be ball compression trend, right? Some uh, activity that's been happening in some way or another for some time that leads to profitability in that area and, and more speculation in that area, that profitability leads to more investment in those types of strategies, right? There's a, a natural momentum factor to these things. And that's part of what leads to trend. So from 30,000 feet, you know, there's more dealer positioning when there's more kind of trend. And a great ex- easy example of that would have been March, 2020 till the peak in, in, in Jan of this year, right? One way uptrend, what do we get? Massive call speculation and tech names and meme names. A lot of index put hedging because people are making money and there's a lot more concern. And so you get record skew. So you get really concentrated positioning that builds, builds and builds. And it's, you know, our dealer flow is by no means a, a trend following strategy. It's completely non-correlated. If you look at the two years of track record when the market was rallying, we did very well, but non-correlated. And the key there is you have just much more of a predictive edge when that dealer positioning is bigger. It has a bigger uh, play. So more active, more bigger bets, more leverage when that dealer positioning is more meaningful and, and has more predictive value. That's from 30,000 foot you know, feet. Now, if you kind of zoom back in on a day-to-day basis, um, absolutely, as we're uh, approaching periods where dealer positioning matters more broadly near big expirations or when positioning is important, event vols, uh, you know, approaching the Fed or some type of election or something important matters a lot more, uh, much more opportunity. Um, you know, in those environments and much bigger percentage of the flows, um, you know, um, during those types of periods. So we definitely have a tendency to be more active and to be more leveraged and when, when we know more of the equation, right? Um, and we have a higher uh, conviction that the, the wave is big and we can hop on that wave and, and kind of uh, ride it. Um, so th- th- there's definitely a time element. Uh, it's not uh, as easy as saying, oh, during certain times of the month or certain days of the week. Um, it really is a function of, of activity and dealer positioning. And those things are correlated with, 
with more uh, important activities or when people are afraid or there's bigger positioning based on simply uh, callables or uh, over-the-counter trades or things that we know that are structured in a certain way. So um, a few people have posted, and I don't track this super closely, but a few people have posted that the outstanding deltas are particularly large coming into the June quarterly expiry at the moment, both at the index level and the individual stock level. I just wonder, like, can you share any insights that um, for what people might expect? And before you do, can you just describe what we mean by outstanding deltas for those that are are starting to get into the world of options? Yeah. So, um, you know, when we talk about dealer positioning in the vol space, we're talking about um, how broadly, you know, the dealers are the banks or the market makers, right? The individuals who are taking on liquidity and hedging it. Um, they're, uh, you know, asking for some level of relative value edge. Uh, and they're holding that relative to other positions. Um, but broadly, uh, most of the street is positioned the same way because they are ultimately absorbing that liquidity. Um, that positioning uh, leads to certain effects as time passes. For example, if uh, as a simple example, if, you know, in the June expiration, uh, everybody was, you know, all the dealers were short the 36 half put, uh, 36.50 put in the S&P 500. They would need to be short stock against that, right? And let's say it was a 10 delta. I'm just making all of this up, but just for the uh, you know, uh, example. Um, and so all that stock that they're short against this decaying option will eventually go to zero at June expiration. Um, and not just at June expiration, as vol compresses dramatically, right? Um, you know, and those options go to very small options in, in one form or another. Um, that delta disappears, right? And they will need to buy back that delta, right? Um, those are broadly what we call Vana and charm effects, which, you know, charm is the change in time and its effect on options, right? Vana is the change in vol uh, and its effect on uh, on options in the delta buyback. Um Gamma effects, which people are more uh, familiar with, is if you get towards that 36.50 put, uh, it becomes a bigger and bigger delta. It may go from a 10 delta if you go to 36.50 to a 50 delta. And you know, the, you know, as the market moves, dealers also have to um, balance accordingly. So it's this reflexive game, and it's not um, you know, if the market goes nowhere reflexively, they have stock to buy, so it supports the market. But if the market then starts to decline and goes quickly to the strike, especially towards expiration, becomes more volatile. So during these times when dealer positioning is big, it changes the distribution of outcome. Everybody always turns to me and, and asks me, you know, so what does that mean? Is the market going up or down? What's going to, you know, the answer is not, uh, you know, that we're going to go up or down. It's simply that the distribution changes. It becomes, if people are short the 36.50 put, you get a much fatter tail, right? Uh, you know, the, the gamma effects are much bigger and it can be reflexively very dangerous. But in the absence of that, you have decay, which is a natural kind of buyback of stock that happens over time. So it makes things much more right biased. So the distribution changes based on dealer positioning. And, and so it's not always about being long or short. It's about being, uh, you know, both maybe long and short, but in the right places, in the right part of the distribution. And I think that's an important thing to understand. But uh, it's, dealer it's the, yeah. yeah, it's the, the, uh, the difference between outcome and distribution. You know, that's been working for me talking about Dr. Strange. Yep. And that last scene of the uh, Avengers when he goes in time and sees all the possibilities, right? Yep. And you just yeah, have no, to I, kind of position yourself for all possibilities. He, of course, decided on one possibility, but you need to understand that there's many outcomes. And yeah, I've talked about this. yourself long and short in different ways to maximize the opportunity set and the change of 
possible outcomes across that distribution is what you want to actually do. That's exactly right. It's actually way harder to predict up or down. Uh, just broadly, it's easier to predict distribution or certain information, informational pieces of that distribution. And it's, it's actually even more valuable in a sense. Um, you know, most of the asset managers in this world come to it from a place of cash flows and fundamentals and long stocks or long bonds, right? That's just naturally kind of how this world has come to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but our argument broadly, and people even call options the derivative, right? They're a derivative of the underlying. But we very much believe, uh, you know, that derivatives represent the full distribution options represent the full distribution are, are much more representative of the actual entity and its potential outcomes right i mean you could have two stocks from the same industry same market cap you have no name and from a stock perspective you'd say oh these are the same stock but one could have a very fat left tail uh, and very right biased and the other one could have just a normal distribution and they could be completely different stocks ultimately uh, the, they have the same expected value, which is what the stock value is, what the market cap is. And so stocks, in our opinion, are actually the derivative of the, the distribution. They are the expected value um, of a much more complex and rich uh, set of information, which is the distribution um, uh, of the underlying asset. And I think that's a lot of people are waking up to this, even if they don't fully understand it. They, the fact that they can bet on, you know, with leverage on an outsize outcome to the upside or downside is a, in a sense uh, that realization that you can bet on uh, you know the relative value opportunity of of a, of a tail outcome and get um, you know the the uh, more precise um, you know small price bet that pays off in a big way and and so yeah, there's the non-linear one bet you're going to lose most of the time correct but, but if, if you make that bet over and over and over again with the right price you're going to make uh, a positive PL, right a positive expectancy return. right and I think this is why we're seeing a big um, you know, people will argue with me, but you know, why we're seeing a, a secular increase in um, you know, options trading. It's a it's a superior product. I think it's hard to debate that. There's less liquidity, and that liquidity is increasing. But I, I think of it as a better technology, right? Uh, if we're hitting a tipping point, there's more liquidity, there's more products, there's more education, you know, there's more access broadly. Um, all of this is leading to uh, you know, again, we've had a, a linear factor exposure, you know, ETF for every factor exposure, every style, uh, you know, that's almost comical to me in the sense that people are saying it's still playing in two dimensions on everything when when we have the ability to bet uh, on a full distribution of all outcomes, um, uh, which is much more precise. Um, and again, I think people are broadly waking up to this. We've seen secular increases in options trading uh, that's been, you know, not just secularly increasing, but increasing in adoption for, you know, 25 years now. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's only accelerating. Um, and I think, you know, moving into a period where we're more likely to get nonlinear outcomes is also helping get us past that tipping point and adopting even more volume. So I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we've already seen periods now where notional trading volume is bigger in options than actual stocks. I wouldn't be surprised if that continues secularly and at some point, you know, 20 years from now or so options trading is, is, you know, something that every RIA and, every kind of wealth advisor is, is doing, um, you know, structurally. Well, that would certainly require a pretty substantial increase in general depth and competency at the, you know, just, just across all investors to be able to maximize that, that opportunity set. Or more tools, right. Um, or more tools that allow them to think of it in their terms. I mean, I think, uh, if you think about stocks and bonds, we aren't all bond, born understanding what a stock. It seems like it because it's second nature to all of us now, right? But the reality is you learn and we all think probabilistically, whether we 
think about probability itself or not. You know, we all make decisions every day by weighing benefits and costs, <clears throat> right? Um, and thinking uh, what those odds are. And I think the more you allow people that framework and tools to do it, people will naturally, uh, you know, it's just like a language, right? I mean, we speak this language, it comes naturally at this point, but that's because we were, you know, taught that and it was part of our kind of cultural awareness. I think options are entering that zeitgeist and that broad education. I think, um, again, it's hard to imagine coming from our perspective now, but, um, you know, as somebody who's on the other side and has been for 25 years, um, you know, just seeing the adoption, understanding that's happened broadly is it's pretty remarkable relative to where we were 20 some years ago. Sam, God love you, man. But I think eventually you're going to have to develop a chip that you uh, implant in the vast majority of the human population to think in, in a probabilistic terms. We're working you know, on it. This is where Portland would have a really uh, built chip that can actually help us out. But I just don't see that happening you know people were skeptical 15 years ago and here we are notional i don't know there's gonna be plenty of opportunity for you to capture your alpha for the next couple decades i think well it's demonstrable that most people think in probability space in terms of yes no or maybe (laughs) that's the level of granularity right so but i hear you with the right tools um then you can certainly distill the relevant information and probability space enough to provide context for, for people for better decision-making. Absolutely. Um, so I want to, uh, that was really good uh, context. And I kind of want to circle back if you don't mind. And if, if you're not comfortable kind of addressing this, that's okay too. We can kind of move on. But is there anything you can kind of share about, about current positioning and, and dealer positioning? And, um, you know, this is kind of where you typically derive your commentary for, you know, when you do chime in, on Twitter, for example, which I've always loved. And I think you've been doing that um, less frequently. Maybe you're getting more busy or maybe you're just finding that there's too much toxicity or, you know, it's not worth it for whatever reason. But I think a lot of this, the, the flows discussion is kind of what motivates some of your really great Twitter threads. So maybe what I'm asking is, can you kind of like on the spot put together kind of a short Twitter thread on what is current positioning and what does it kind of say about what we might expect coming into the end of the quarter? Sam will have to share his screen to do a meme and a gif with <laughs> yeah, every Yeah, that's right. That's right. He makes. Like, put some emojis up. Certainly the, the king of, of gifs up on the sure. screen as I talk. Um, no, um, yeah, absolutely. No problem. Um, yeah, I mean, why have I not been doing this on Twitter as much? Because the more, you know, when I had 5,000 followers, uh, it was fine, but with kind of 85,000 traders, uh, a lot of these are heads of uh, you know, PMs at Citadel and Susquehanna. And, yeah, right. Uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, again, I know who's following me and it does have reflexive effects. So I, I'm better off not saying uh, the bigger the funds get and the more uh, important this is. So that's a big part of it, um, quite, quite frankly. Um, uh, but uh, to speak, you know, more directly, uh, you know, we only have, I think, 100 50, 200 people on here or whatever it is, so I can be a little more candid. Um, the, uh, the reality is right now uh, is very important uh, for dealer positioning. Um, there are several major, major structural trades that have been quite unique during this period. And this is also just a broad, unique period in terms of market move, right? Um, you know, one of them is this JP Morgan trade, which you guys have heard me talk about, but there's a, uh, you know, JP Morgan uh, hedged yeah. equity product yeah. that puts on a massive, uh, you know, structured put spread collar, right? It buys a put spread and sells a call over its equity. And it does that quarterly. It actually does it monthly now as well. But the quarterly one is by far, it's the oldest and the biggest. Um, and it overwhelms 
the size of any other trade that's uh, in the equity indexes, at least. And it's not the whole story, but this is a good example of, of some of what's happening. There's also a lot of uh, structured, uh, you know, uh, you know, products that are that are tied to these June these quarterly expirations, and and so there's a lot of again click at options and, and auto callables and a lot of these other exotic uh, instruments that ultimately also affect the June. But all of them have not all of them, but most of them have similarities and they tend to have similar effects. Um, and what we've seen in the recent uh, decline is immediately under the market uh, a lot of uh, based on the JP Morgan trade and other trades. Uh, dealers have been massively long vol. Um, they have been long, uh, you know, 3600s, 3650s, 3700 area in the market in the June expiration. So that has led to an oversupply of vol, has led to an, uh, was, we've all seen an underperformance of vol because ultimately that's actually the expiration practically you want because it's the Fed, uh, because it's a lot of other things that, uh, you know, can can give you a hedge for uh, events and other stuff. So people have been able to sell other things against it ultimately because they have this, this massive amount of vol in, uh, kind of where they want it. And that, that supply has led to massive vol compression and uh, you know, has led to some of this Delta buyback that we've talked about along the way, which has led to these massive bounces. We saw one in March last quarter, um, you know, it was a 10% ripper right before uh, March quarter expiration. And it's led to a lot of buyback um, as vol has compressed, um, you know, in other products. But as you approach that expiration that you've been long, right, dealers are about to decay now. They went from decaying longer and longer and longer vol because they were moving towards their lungs and the stuff they sold both in front of it or whatever that was expensive has gone away or is going away. But as you approach that June expiration, now those ma- that massive vol supply starts to dissipate. They're all trying to roll their expiration, you know, the vol, or or maybe, you know, they're not hedging as much, right? And on the customer side, because vol has met dramatically underperformed, you had a lot of puts in portfolios, uh, you know, be liquidated right into the decline. People are like, well, this hedge has not really worked that well. I better take the money while I can, or, or I'm not going to have, you know, or I'm going to be worse off than I would have been without the hedge, right? Um, and in the equity vol space, a lot of people who are at the top were thought this would be something that would hedge them and, you know, have been poor, you know, uh, have been uh, unfortunately uh, poorly, you know, the outcome has been very poor and they've been very disappointed. Um, so that's led to even more vol supply. So it's kind of a reflexive loop where there's been vol selling and there's been vol supply, but it's all been concentrated around this June expiration. So it's very important as we get to this point, um, you know, to, to take a look at that and understand that as this rolls off, there's some fragility. Now, there are some other things going on here. Um, you know, there's another JP Morgan trade coming, uh, you know, it'll be here in a couple of weeks, um, you know, uh, just over two weeks, two and a half weeks. Um, and, uh, that will provide more of all supply and I'll provide it further out in different places and different things. And people are starting to also prepare for those things and moving, uh, moving around. Again, I'm just focusing on the JP Morgan trade because it's easier. There's a lot of other details that, that correlate, but broadly vol is dramatically oversupplied. Um, there's also a broad fear in the market and, and an unwillingness because of all the macro things going on to uh, you know, by dealers for dealers to take more risk than they normally may. Uh, the, the, this is not a time of necessarily complacency yet. Um, so we uh, we continue to see. I mean, today is a great example. Um, fixed strike vol was dramatically down today. You saw headlines on CNBC about how you know the VIX pops explosion fear index. Ah! Yeah, the reality is vol dramatically dramatically underperformed, especially given the size of the move today. 
And again, that's because everybody's dropping into these kind of June options. So, um, you know, our view is, again, to give more specific commentary that uh, that vol supply is, is likely, um, you know, uh, likely to continue here. Uh, we'll have a time of volatility in a realized basis during this window. Um, and it could be very choppy and, and especially with the Fed coming up, uh, you could get uh, some real um, kind of back and forth movement. But broadly, Vega or implied vol um, will continue to underperform in this window. Um, we believe that as you get past kind of this period, uh, June, July, um, you know, you're going to start getting more and more people liquidating uh, and, and less and less hedged. Um, and eventually there'll be a fade here from the hedges, right? Um, you know, uh, and again, maybe this fall, maybe a little sooner in August or so. Um, but, uh, you know, this underperformance of all lasts for a while. Uh, mm-hmm. And eventually the, the losses and the pain, it's too hard for people to hedge, to hold that ball. And the vol selling strategies, uh, you know, I'm starting to hear marketing stories, you know, people coming to me showing, look at this fund. What do you, John, what do you think about this vol fund? Look how well it's done in this booth. Like, this is a great edge. I'm like, that's a short vol fund. They sell, yeah. they sell stuff. <laughs> um, you know, like, uh, yeah, yes, it's up 25%, you know, this year. Um, uh, that does like, please, please don't put your money in Right. So uh, Sam, can I just go back to the, uh, to the hedge equity fund? Because I want to understand what the value that, that I guess the original portfolio managers that created the fund were after um, and what investors think they're after. Because when I, when I look at what that hedge is doing, <clears throat> I mean, I've done analysis on this and I'm going to share my screen just quick because it just recreated it. But it basically turns out that you can replicate the, um, the fund by being 40%, 60% in SPY and uh, 40% in cash. That's the yellow line. In fact, it outperforms it, right? And it's, the correlation is astoundingly high. So has, was there a different uh, uh, attempt to do something very different than 60% equity, 40% cash, and they're hindered by it now because they're so big? Or was it always meant to do this thing at, in a way that like adding options complexity when, the, when cash would have done the job? Yeah, I mean, look, it's uh, it's a structured product. Uh, they, uh, you know, there's no real uh, discretion or logic other than they buy the 5% out of the money put uh, and they sell the 20% out of the money put uh, and they sell the call that makes that caller premium neutral. That is the definition of what they do. They do that every time. Um, so people know this. And so people kind of front run it and kind of take whatever out of it, you know, but at the end of the day, they're long one X stock against that. It's about a $20 billion fund. Um, and, uh, at the end of the day, uh, you know, they're going to lose money on their stock, the first 5%, right. And then they're going to be, uh, you know, fine for the next 15%. And then they're going to start losing money again. That's the hedge. And there's no extra premium to say. And then, for that, they're going to have only the upside up until whatever call they write, right? Um, and so they have, you know, it's a pretty easy break-even graph to draw. I mean, you can approximate it with other strategies, but it's a pretty straightforward strategy. And, uh, and you know, they've, uh, you know, in a, in a slow grinding up market that does very well and, uh, and it protects you from catastrophic losses probably to the downside. And uh, some people prefer that, uh, that type of uh, exposure, but it's 
it's nothing more than just a, you know, uh, giving yourself access to certain parts of the distribution, as we talked about earlier, and wanting certain types of exposure. It's not long stock, short stock. It is, you know, a funny looking graph uh, that kind of gives you protection in certain windows and not in others. And, uh, you know, historically, you know, that that has uh, been, you know, based on history, I bet you the track record, they, you know, they probably picked those points because it looks looks good historically, right? But uh, environments <laughs> change and, you know, you may not want that exposure during uh, this, you know, if this market goes down 5%, you know, every quarter for the next, uh, you know, 20 quarters, uh, you're going to perform like stock performed, uh, which is not very well. Um, so, you know, it just depends what, you know, what kind of exposure you want. Uh, and broadly, up until relatively recently, you've gotten quick quarterly drawdowns of something big with some big rally back and then other periods of grinding, you know. So it, it's looked, it's protected you in those big drawdowns and then gotten you right back on track with certain, you know, reasonable gains the rest of the way. Um, and uh, people look at that historical performance and they don't understand options and they say, yeah, that's for me. Uh, but that's about it. You know, I don't think that you could read way more into it, but that's about it. History is rife with these funds that grow to many billions of dollars with these, with promises of these types of nonlinear payoffs. And, you know, somehow, the mar- especially when they broadcast their rules so transparently, you know, the market is reflexive and, and, you know, it's amazing how often the market finds a way to engineer a path that is precisely the kryptonite to the path that would maximize pain for those products. I don't so want to mention do, any, no, the problem any names. Is what do you do with a fund that big as if you're the, if you're the issuer, right? If you're a hedge fund, you can always say, listen, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to give your money back. There's, this is the amount of money I can trade where I can do the best I can do. When you're a public fund, this is the same thing with Kathy Wood, right? When you're a public fund, when you're an exchange-traded fund, a mutual fund, you have no control over the flows. You have two options. You either take flows or you close the fund, yep. right? I guess you could rewrite the prospectus to do something different. But again, it's just such a, it's, it's a problem for a lot of these uh, public funds. I don't know if they have any other options than what they have. You know yeah, I, mean? I, I, I did a, a long vol webinar yesterday for prospective customers. And one of the questions I got was exactly this. It's like, wow, this performance is great. Like, uh, why don't you just launch a uh, ETF? Uh, and, uh, you know, every, you know, you could get, you could raise a billion dollars. Why aren't you doing this? <laughs> it's exactly what you said, right? Uh, the second I, you know, uh, every, everybody's trading our strategy, right? And has a sense of what we're doing. Um, you know, you have to deal with the people trading your strategy. You also have to provide daily liquidity. And there's a, there's a massive disadvantage to being an ETF. Um, and, it's, and it reflects in the performance of these products. But people want easy. People don't want to think. And people are scared of private funds because they seem opaque and all these other things, but the reality is there's more edge. There's more flexibility. Um, there's an immense uh, benefit to not having to worry um, about all those, uh, those problems. Like you mentioned that, that, that cause uh, a lot of stress as we've seen uh, in different periods. Just look at XIV, right? Uh, well, apocalypse. Yeah. We can no go kidding. with that. Oh, Adam's muted. Adam, I Sorry, think you're we, muted. Yeah, we, we had a long chat about that exact challenge in last week's riffs where you know for so for so long we published most of our best research because it was all kind of derivative right it was based on either consolidating research from a few other transparent sources or 
it was describing an effect that had, you know, what we assume to be effectively infinite um, capacity, right? And as soon as we actually began to run genuine alpha strategies that hadn't been published before and where there are no rules that, that others can follow, then our publishing dropped off dramatically and, and we have a lot, a lot less to talk about. And it's also impacted the types of products that we want to launch, right? Like we constantly have people saying, why don't you launch an ETF? The reality is we have to make so many compromises to how we would run the strategy if we were to publish it, you know, run it in ETF that we can't, you know, hold our heads up and, and run it properly. So it's, you know, I, I totally, totally understand that trade-off. Um, that's a moral hazard, right? I mean, people like JP Morgan doesn't care. They don't care. No, exactly. they don't care about the performance. They don't care. They're getting their one percent. JP Morgan is not going to not going to take yeah. that off the they're table like, because demand. Has... we're just providing a product because there's demand. Yeah, um, but uh, you kind of get what you pay. And for. there's comfort as an advisor in giving money to an eighteen billion dollar fund, right? Right. Every, yeah. If everybody no is one gets fired buying IBM, yeah. it's an ETF. It's easy, right? Just you know, get in, get out. That's right. Um, okay, that was super interesting on the um, on the volatility side. Um, I know you are passionate also about macro and we do spend quite a lot of time on this um, broadcast on macro. So I did want to make sure that we, we had a chance to spend some time on, on your, your macro framework and, and what you're observing and kind of the trajectory that you're anticipating um, over the next little while. So maybe to kind of start us off, um, you know, where do you think we are in in this cycle right and and just and and how prepared do you think that that the sort of kind of asset weighted average market participants are um for the environment that we're likely to see over the next five to ten years so that's a that's a broad enough kind of question to allow you to go in a few different directions yeah i mean i like to start at the beginning um i have a broad thesis, right, of, of, of where we are in a big macro cycle. And I've been talking about this for a year and a half or two years now very publicly. And, you know, things have definitely gone in that direction. But uh, and I think that people are starting to listen a bit more. But um, this almost starts with philosophy at its core, right? Uh, I think it's important to start there and have a, a grounding. It's human nature, animals, natural selection, right? We have free market economics is essentially natural selection. Um, it's uh, it's the right, it's competitive uh, drive that, that gets um, things ultimately to a, a, an optimal place. That is the natural state of things, right? Um, and free markets have, uh, you know, generally are dominant and get us, uh, you know, wealthy, get more money and successful corporations get more money. And eventually, um, you know, that drives advancement. When you give do monetary policy, right? That's essentially you're stoking the flames of free market economics on steroids. It's free money, right? Um, think of it as, uh, I've used this analogy on Twitter, but think of it as uh, the Mesozoic era for dinosaurs and unlimited oxygen, right? It created really big dinosaurs, right? Um, if you give unlimited resources, um, which is capital, to corporations, um, you create a technological revolution. You also create immense growth, right? Uh, you, add, you know, at least maybe not in dollars profit measurement, but definitely in terms of advancement. And, and that's what we've innovation. seen. Innovation. Yeah, innovation, exactly. So that's what we've seen. Uh, really, it's accelerated over the last 40 years. So monetary policy became dominant, um, you know, because if you think about it, 
US, the U.S. government was created not to move fast. It was made to, to not let absolute power corrupt absolutely, to have checks and balances, and to make it difficult to pass laws. And that created a lot of crisis over many years that people weren't okay with. And eventually they said, we need to be able to react more quickly. Uh, we need somebody to manage this economy a little bit more dynamically. So they created the Federal Reserve, right? And the Federal Reserve um, it became more and more dominant, and particularly once we went off, when we went, moved to fiat, went off the gold standard and more and more leverage and more power, right? Um, and so what's happened is the Fed has been the only game in town. They have solved all financial problems as we've gone, been very reactive um, and been completely dominant and particularly in the last 20 some years. As that's happened, right, um, that's created a, this benevolent cycle, you know, uh, it's created, uh, you know, again, a, a natural selection competitive world where money flows to the top and the best ideas win. Um, and ultimately, uh, they get bigger and bigger and they get more and more profit. We've had 1.75% GDP growth in real terms over the last 40 years. Of that, 0.75% of that has gone to the median person. So 1%, think about that, 1%, more than half of the benefits have gone to the top 1%. 1%, 1 for the whole economy going to the top 1% means 100% growth for that 1% compounded every year for 40 years. It's kind of mind-blowing. I mean, if you, if you think about the compounding effect. So just like in nature, it's caused, you know, inequality. All the benefits have gone to the top. Um, and it's also created a technological revolution, as I mentioned. I mean, if you think about it, you know, as a kid, I don't know how old you guys are. I'm 45. But as a kid, we watched the Jetsons and read the book 1984 and then read the book 2000 Space Odyssey. And the future was always science fiction. It never came nearly quick enough. People nowadays, it comes quicker than you could ever possibly imagine. Or cloning and mapping the, you know, the, the DNA and, and going to the moon, going to Mars and, you know, creating uh, all kinds of incredible um, inventions. And, and, and I think people have lost sight. People just think that's the natural, you know, Moore's law. Things are just doubling and doubling and doubling again. They're going to double. That's a function of oxygen. We've been providing so much oxygen, so much resources and money, right, to the system. Um, anyway, so the point is that could go on forever and it's benevolent because that's, that's deflationary, right? And that allows the Fed to do more. Uh, you know, that you send money to planet Palo Alto, as I call it. You send money off to this sophisticated planet where they make incredible new goods, all these corporations. And that money doesn't go to individuals for the most part, right? That goes uh, to creating new technologies, Amazons and Ubers and Teslas and all kinds of things that then are sent back to our little planet here. Uh, and that is not inflation, that's deflationary at the end of the day. It also promotes globalization. The more money goes to corporations, the more they're going to you know, want to reduce their costs. And so we've had a massive push for globalization and global profits. So it's been a 40-year cycle of this. And that could go on forever and it'd be wonderful, right? Uh, and except for one problem. There's human beings in the system. And human beings believe in, in some concepts that are actually not natural concepts, if you think about them. Justice, you know, liberty, uh, uh, equality, um, you know, uh, an idea that when I look at you uh, and you look at me, we have some commonality and there should be some level of fairness, right? You can't just let us starve here in the streets while you create immense technological things. And so these two, and they're essentially the left and right, right? They're, you know, populism versus free market economics, right? Uh, <clears throat> stories old as time, right? Um, you know, uh, 
libertarianism versus communism, right? however you want to put it. But at the end of the day, natural selection and this thing is, is a, it, it has a life of its own and eventually takes hold again. But along the way, people say it's not fair and they ha- there has to be a rebalance that happens. This is not a hundred years of history. This is 100,000 years of, of human history and, and goes on beyond that. So I know I started at the very beginning in a philosophy, but I think it's very important to understand this dynamic. And we just right. went too far. We went too far, right? And that's what always happens. It always goes too far. Somebody says, let them eat cake. And at some point, uh, you know, uh, populism, uh, you know, rears its head. And, and populism started rearing its head about eight, nine years ago. You heard you a lot of books written about inequality. People started talking about it globally. Uh, populist leaders globally started to come more to power. Whether you like Donald Trump or Bernie Sanders, they both move left. They both are incredibly populist. One is talking to poor white people in West Virginia, and the other one's talking about to poor urban people in, in Chicago, right? Uh, you know, it is, but they're, they're still, it's the poor working class that has underperformed for 40 years that feels and the young who feel that the system hasn't worked for them and it's not fair. And your mom may say to you, you know, life isn't fair. That's fine. But at some point you're only going to put up with it for so long. And so this, this populism built and built and built and built. Donald Trump brought the right left, the left went even more left and then COVID happened. And that was the, the spark, right? And that spark led to $12 trillion of fiscal policy. That's a populist revolution by any other name. That's 10 times an order of magnitude bigger in real terms than the New Deal. Adjusted for the size of the economy, it's about the same. But this is not the Great Depression. The New Deal plugged a decade-long hole called the Great Depression. Um, And that response is not monetary policy. That money doesn't go to planet Palo Alto. That money goes to people, has a velocity of one. And not surprisingly, that's created inflation. It always does. Populism always creates inflation. That's a rebalancing to people. People are getting money. They haven't had money. What do they do with money? They spend it. They don't buy investments on the bottom. They buy goods. You know, they go from eating a less than enough to enough, or maybe just eating a little better, spending a little bit more, right? Um, and so that populist impulse is the key here to the macro view. Here we are. And once that populism starts historically, it doesn't just stop. And the reason is populism leads to inflation and inflation leads to more populism. At the end of the day, inflation is a flat, flat tax. So all of a sudden people thought they were doing better. Everybody was celebrating during COVID. Look at how much money in my bank. And then all of a sudden, everything in their bank got worth 10% less, right? Or whatever it is, right? And that makes people even more angry and more frustrated, right? The system is broken. It's not working for me. Um, And that's true globally. So um, during times like that, you get more geopolitical stress. You get a unwind of globalization. You get uh, because you go from a collaboration game to a uh, to a competition game. Broadly, people are scrambling for resources. And importantly, the more that starts, the more long-term expectations of inflation get rooted. The more people start moving forward, uh, you know, uh, uh, buying you know inventories and uh, you know uh, all kinds of demand. Uh, on top of that, if in a, you know interest rates are now expected to be six percent for the next two years or whatever okay. it is, right? People will you can't keep interest rates low because at the end of the day, institutions will borrow at three percent, leverage everything that they can pin down and that, that they know is going to appreciate to six percent, and then they're going to push that. What does that do? That pushes inflation even higher. Even We've seen these cycles, right? This is a we were in a benevolent cycle uh, for markets uh, and and a 
you know, bad for, for the average person, right, for the low working class. And now labor is starting to, you know, and populism is starting to rail its head. And I think that's the core concept that we have to, you know, look at and understand. And again, we were very vocal about this starting about two years ago when COVID happened. Um, so this is all very much played out this way. And I think this concept of, you know, the Fed is trying to convince, that's what the whole transitory thing was about. People are like, the, the Fed's an idiot. How do they think it was transitory? They're not idiots. They're, they're trying to convince the market, you know, that it's transitory so that the market doesn't, you know, set uh, run ahead of them, run ahead of it. Yeah. And they couldn't, <clears throat> and not a surprise that they couldn't because this, these things have much bigger and more powerful, um, you know, underlying effects that are, that yeah. are hard to avoid. Um, and now the Fed is stuck. The Fed's in a box. We were in this benevolent cycle, and now the Fed has no choice. They, they have their hands tied behind their back. They cannot now. They had a dual mandate, and for the longest time, doing monetary policy was good for both. It was deflationary and, and stimulated to maximum employment. But now, you know, that was all deflationary. Now we're asking the Fed to remove liquidity and somehow go from what they cause deflation to also cause deflation, Right. You're taking money away from planet Palo Alto and supply, right, to somehow reduce inflation, which is people the, the money that people have. And the only real way they can do that is with a major lag, A, and B, it's essentially dropping up, like blowing up the economy. You can clear the underbrush by dropping a nuclear bomb on the forest. I'm not saying the Fed can't stop inflation, but that's essentially what they have to do. They have to blow up the economy, blow up supply and demand, um, you know, via, via a channel that is not optimal. Um, and, uh, you know, really the, you know, particularly in this time, you know, day and age, you know, in the seventies, we talk about Volcker and whatnot in the seventies, labor was an intrinsic, important input to, to corporate activity, technology and globalization has created, you know, much less connection there. So if you, you take money away from corporations, yeah, they'll, they'll fire some people. Right. But that, that's, has less to do with the inputs of those corporations than it used to. So they really have their hands tied behind their back. And um, if you think about valuation, particularly price to sales, I mean, get into the difference between earnings and sales and why margins are records and it all ties into this, right? Um, you know, that's a problem. The, the Fed is not here to save us anymore. Um, bonds are not here to save you anymore, right? Uh, both those things are actually going the other way. Um, and so, you know, we're kind of, uh, I've used the analogy of, you know, you're on a, on a jet and the liquidity has been firing and we've been going you know, higher and higher and higher. And we're at 30,000 feet and being at 30,000 feet on that plane, you feel fine. It doesn't really matter because those liquidities firing, but we're at 30,000 feet and the engines are going pop, 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 pop. And so, well, you know. Yeah. It's a, just an interesting thing because you probably don't know this about me, but I'm, I'm Peruvian and we emigrated out of Peru in 89 because of a, uh, hyperinflationary period at 7,200% in six months. And what you saw was in the beginning of it, in the mid eighties, you saw two things, right? Number one is the realization that the government can print money when there's a deflationary situation. You want to bump up the right assets, which is kind of investment assets. But when you start giving money to the people, which is what the president started doing, he started handing out wads of money to people, like literally both, you know, at, in their bank accounts, but you'd see videos of him going to, towns and handing out wads of money when you put that money into people's pockets it leads to too much that's when it leads too much money chasing too few goods right versus what has been happening in the last 30 years 40 years which is any liquidity that the, the fed injected went to the wealth effect and asset prices for the very wealthy right that's the good type of inflation 
that's the, the inflation that helped them deal with when they only had to think about growth dynamics. High growth, you know, let's ease up. Low growth, let's print as much money and add liquidity to the system to get that wealth effect going. And as you said, when the moment you give money in people's pockets, now we have in too much money chasing goods that the Fed can't produce, right? The Fed can't create more food, more grains, more copper. That's not in their purview. The economy needs to do that, right? So it is, it, that's a first order effect. <clears throat> what ended up happening in, two, in 89 is that people started anticipating that. And so you would see in the storefronts, people change. They, they'd have little, they, they, they'd have that erase, uh, you know, that eraser, that's what's it called, the, the marker, erase marker. And they'd update their prices on an hourly basis. Like the soup would cost something different in the morning than it would in the afternoon. Yep. All right, so that's the second. That's what the Fed was trying to do by saying, oh, it's uh, transitory. Yep. We'll get there. Don't worry about it. Right. Don't get ahead of me. I'm going to fix this. Right. And the question really is, how fixable is this? How, what would the Fed need to do today to get ahead of inflation? And what would the consequence of getting ahead of inflation be? And now that now that inflation for 40 years, inflation has not been a hindrance. It has not been a limiting factor for the Fed. Right. True inflation. Now that it is. What, where, where can we expect the Fed to be? To, will, it, will they get ahead of inflation? Will they cause that bomb? Where are, like, do you have a, a view on, of a range here? Yeah, I mean, look, can go. I get this all the time from people. And I can, I've been talking about this for a couple of years, and it's you know, obviously <clears throat> now people are saying, well, look, fiscal happened, but at least people realize that fiscal caused this. So they're not going to do any more, is what people argue. Um, and I think people are missing the complete, you know, the forest from the trees. Um, politically, um, this is only making populism worse. And people aren't going to call it, they're not going to call them price controls. They're not going to call it fiscal stimulus. But you better believe they're going to want to help, you know, their constituents with the price increases. And inevitably, price controls of some kind happen. This is just what happens. That's what people want help on the bottom. They're getting, they're being hurt. You know, they're, they're going to come, you know, with pitchforks in the street, if not, and they end up giving money to these people and and you can you know you'll get first time home buyer tax credits watch you're going to get uh, gas tax holidays watch all these things sound really nice to the public but they're fiscal stimulus and they actually make inflation worse they're little band-aids that you know make people worse and so the fed not only has to deal with what's in front of them now they have to deal with this continued impulse which is almost inevitable um, and they're not going to it's not going to be the same it's not going to be sending uh, you know $100,000 checks to people. It's not going to be, um, and there'll be mixes of supply side responses as well. But, but uh, you know, once this, this is not something that you can solve in months or even a year or two. Um, and it's almost inevitable that these expectations uh, take hold. The alternative is, is a depression. Um, you know, the alternative is, is, is not feasible or possible uh, politically. It's, it's completely politically unpalatable. Um, and I think that's that's the key. I mean, you touched on it, and, and I kind of mentioned it is is you know the difference between monetary and fiscal policy is dramatically misunderstood by policymakers, by individuals, and I think that's what led people to completely miss this. Like we've already done twenty five trillion dollars of stimulus, right? Look, at it, it's not inflationary. We're never going to see inflation again, right? But the difference is if you print twenty five trillion dollars put in a little lockbox over here, right? Or a little machine that makes goods 
and then you send more in Jeff Bezos' money. bank account and right. and Elon Musk's bank account, where their marginal propensity to spend is zero. Then Correct. You're not and even worse it. than not they're not willing to spend. Same thing, right? But even yeah. worse than not spending, they're going to keep producing things that put big box stores out of business, that put you know cab drivers out of business, that that make things more efficient and need less inputs and send jobs overseas and do all the things that makes the system much more efficient, create technological revolution, right? <clears throat> but at the end of the day, not only is that, that, that money not entering the market, uh, you know, going into their bank accounts, but they're reinvesting it in things that are ultimately hurting labor, um, you know, uh, or at least sending less money to labor um, ultimately. So well, the problem is, or a problem is that, you know, the neo-Keynesian argument for, globalization was always that, yeah, you're going to have 10 or 15, maybe 20 years of mercantilism where we're going to offshore labor and we're going to redistribute the types of jobs that are done onshore versus offshore and companies are going to get more efficient. Um, but then those mercantilist economies are going to, to turn into first world consumer driven economies and we're going to have a virtuous cycle where, yeah, you know, labor is going to suffer for 10 or 15 years, but eventually we are going to specialize in higher value. You know, we being the first world will specialize in higher value production and we will sell that higher value production to a new first world middle class that has emerged as a function of sort of climbing out of mercantilism into a normal kind of developed consumer-led Western economy, right? And I guess one of the big challenges is that China especially never outgrew its mercantilist roots, right? And so, you know, they've, they've put a cap on their exchange rate. They have never introduced policies that incentivize consumption. They've always ran their economy as, you know, a, a managed economy largely built on investment, government-led investment in infrastructure and uh, production. And so that virtuous cycle never took hold, right? And so, so now we're left with a hollowed out manufacturing base in many Western democracies. And the other side of the equation has not materialized. And in the middle of this re recognition, we've got, um, you know, at all points alert, that maybe we aren't globally as friendly as we all thought we were, you know, that maybe we can't depend on Russia to export the commodities that we need for this globalization cycle to persist. Maybe we can't count on China to produce the goods that we need, maybe it's strategic goods, or maybe just regular everyday goods if they're going to go into lockdowns to prevent you know, to, to implement a zero COVID type policy, right? So you're now shifting from this um, vision of maximizing efficiency to a vision to maximize resiliency. And that requires a complete revisioning of the operation of the global economy, which is also highly inflationary, I think. Yeah. And that's not a coincidence. Those things are not independent factors, right? The unwind of globalization is very much uh, correlated with inflation, Right. Um, when inflation happens, the populace are unhappy. They want more. And the wealthy in a country are not willing to give up more. So the generally the solution is, well, let's take it from our, our competitors, the other you know, people outside the system. 
And it ends up being, and this is what started with Donald Trump, right? The anti, you know, the, the counter China, you know, the tariffs, et cetera. Yeah. That's, that was a populist impulse, right? And that's naturally what happens. There's a xenophobia that develops and a blaming of others. It's a, it becomes a, everybody's scrambling over, uh, you know, limited, what's perceived as, as limited supply. And uh, that forces uh, less globalization, which forces even more inflation, right? But these are all um, a rebalancing, right? Uh, the people who they have nots uh, wanting to have again and not willing to settle without it. And that rebalancing means, you know, the people in China who were working for less and getting better wages, right? They're going to have to see some of that unwind. And those people aren't willing to go backwards. And so there's this push and pull Attention. that leads to, uh, and eventually it becomes, if, if a country or an entity is in a point of weakness, it makes them um, existentially scared and it generally causes them to lash out. Mm-hmm. It's why Germany lashed out after Weimar Germany, right? Inflation drove World War II. People forget, you know, what drove it. Um, you know, if you look at Russia, if you look at China, they have massive demographic problems. Um, China is going to go from 1.2 trillion, uh, 1.2 billion to 700 million people in the next 25 years. They lose 500 million people in population. Um, they have un- unsecure means of technology and in- the inputs that they need in terms of microprocessors. They have not enough commodities for the consumption that even the- that they need, even at 700 million. They are com- completely commodity insecure. And they have great aspirations, right? And so you pair this proud country with great aspirations, with vulnerability in a time of inflation and stress, and you get what we're getting now. Same with Russia. Russia's a massive demographic decline. Yes, they have commodities, right? But they've been hemmed in and they've been, uh, you know, they, they have been in, in, in significant demographic decline. Uh, you know, not just demographic, but, uh, you know, uh, a decline otherwise. And so, a, a, and again, I would argue that if China wasn't willing to back Russia, Russia never would have done this, um, right? And so that, that general fear and angst that comes from these, these two entities that are actually the kind of countries that are in the most demographic decline as a group, uh, most at risk by, by the West trying to reshore their middle class and, and deal with populism. We're also, as the U.S. dollar, we're going to be able to export a significant amount of inflation, right? Now, we'll be able to control inflation by a stronger dollar, ultimately making things cheaper to import. And we're going to export that inflation. Historically, during these times, look at 97, 98, right? When we're raising interest rates and dollar strength happens, what happens? You get emerging market crises. You get the Chinese, uh, you know, the, the Asian uh, crisis. You get the Russian ruble uh, crisis. Dollar denominated debt blows up. And not to mention these autocracies generally aren't as flexible as the democracies in the West. And they lead to pe- real people with pitchforks in the streets as opposed to people. Major who regime out. changes. Major yeah. regime changes. So, I mean, it's, it's not a surprise during times of inflation, these things happen. They are, they're not just correlated. They are structurally connected. And so you should expect that in the next five to 10 years, next 10 years, there'll be a lot of new lines on maps. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if we are in World War III going forward. I know that's scary. And, and that means something different than what, you know, what World War II is. We're at a very different time. There'll be very different effects. But, but there's real uh, competition it's, it's, happening in the world right now and a need to preserve long-term existential angst um, you know, that, that, that uh, is driving a lot of these. So these all, you know, it's a negative feedback loop, like I mentioned, and it, and it works in so many ways. But you can't go 40 years in a benevolent cycle and deviate that far from an equilibrium and not expect, um, you know, what we're what we're about to kind of experience. And look, the way the way I see it is, is it's a 
it's a cycle, right? It's a secular cycle and it's lasted 40 years and you know, it lasts 40 to 70 years. If you look at the Kondrati of waves and all that fun stuff, but it's also rebalancing, as you mentioned, and not all is bad for everybody. I mean, certainly developed nations that have, when you think about the growth of GDP in the United States, for example, it actually has gone up because of globalization, except that most of it has gone to a 1%, right? And so you've hollowed out the middle class. Now we're going to a situation where manufacturing is coming back to the US, where there's going to be a lower gap in, in between the have and the have nots. And we're going to move towards a more equitable society. And other excesses, right? The, the idea that, you know, people my age and younger can't afford to buy a house. And, and so prices have become so excessive that there's this disdain for the rich. Um, you know, as we rebalance back to a normal environment where you can finally afford, yes, at higher interest rates, but high, finally afford a home, be able to, you know, uh, buy stocks at a reasonable price and so on and so forth. You, there's a lot of good that will come through this painful period. As uh, you know, we always tend to focus too much on, look how terrible this all is. Let me tell you, as a Latin American, as somebody, as an immigrant coming into Canada, I remember one of my first memories coming into the, the supermarket was my mom having a panic attack because of the amount of choice that, it, that existed in that, <clears throat> that grocery store, right? When she went to a grocery store in Peru, she, had, she knew what she needed to get. You, you get what you need and you, and you get out. Today, there's 50 brands of everything, 50 options of everything. There's no need for that. In fact, I think it creates a level of anxiety, right? When we start focusing on these luxury beliefs, right? When I see people complain in, in developed nations about microaggressions, um, that if you actually look at any other country are real aggressions, but they're looking within, all of a sudden, you know, those, <clears throat> those luxury beliefs go away and you start focusing and working the real problems that you now have in common with the rest of the world. So I think, you know, ultimately it is a cycle and it is a cycle of excesses and haves and haves nots. And, and this might be painful. Uh, we're going to have to, we're going to go from a 40 year period of creating growth to maybe a 10 to 15 year period of replacing growth that is that is going away. And that's okay. Recognizing our limits, the recognizing our growth limits, understanding, being appreciative of what we have is, a, I think, from a psychological perspective, going to be a massive boon for my children. I, don't, I feel like I, uh, they're going to be lucky that they're going to struggle through this in a way. So I, I, I do want to put that out there as yeah. something of value. I completely agree from a well 30,000 foot view, right? Mm -hmm. 15 years seems like forever and, and it's going to be a, a difficult rebalancing. I mean, you'll have creative destruction. You'll have, you know, all the malinvestment will have to go. I mean, it's not going to be a pretty 15 years. There's a lot of malinvestment too. Massive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what happens in 40 years, right? Of free money. For sure. So, but to your point, we would not have had the 40 years of peace and growth and technological innovation if interest rates, if we didn't get the 68 to 82 period where the market went nowhere in nominal terms and lost 70% of its value and interest rates went to 20, right? Because what that did was that created potential energy to do supply side economics for 40 years. Yeah. Um, and so, and it rebuilt, a, it built a middle class, right? To cause, to, to drive the demand that we could then slowly hollow out again, right? But like the reality is that's the way these things go. So it is a rebalancing. I'll go take it one step further. Here in the US, at least, I would say this is a blessing in disguise. I think if we went any further, if these, if these, you know, 
this inequality and, and the cracks in the system had gone further, it could have it could be much worse. Mm-hmm. If you look at World War II, America wouldn't be where it is if it hadn't gone through that period. The strength and importance of of you know and and the benefits of America, which is you know, security from a commodities perspective, energy and and uh, food security, an island on the other side of the world with the biggest military and and the best innovate you know innovative technology in the world. All of that is now being more appreciated, right? Where Europe didn't like us so much uh, a couple of years ago, right? All of a sudden, you know, Europe's very very kind of uh, friendly. You know, dollar strength is is a benefit that we gain during periods of these time like like this. So, I think. What we're about to go through is actually, you know, a time of rebalancing here in the U.S. as well. A, a chance to, uh, you know, again, our, our founding fathers created a, a system that needed crises in order for the, the system to heal itself, right? To pass laws, to pass, you know, when's the last time we had a constitutional amendment, right? When's the last time we, you know, passed something incredibly meaningful in terms of revitalizing our, and it seems like we're furthest from the case now, but the stress and the pressure that we will be under in the next 15 years will cause demand and populism will cause uh, a, a rejuvenation, if you will. Um, you know, it's either going to blow it up or it's going to help fix the system for the future. And I'm optimistic because this hasn't got another 20, 30 years that this will cause, uh, you know, a, a revitalization of what America is um, and, and what we stand for and the importance um, of that in opposition to, to everything Focusing else. on on real issues. I sound like right. a politician. Isn't that what no. they say? The real issues of America. Right. But, but, but that's, I think generally this will force them to actually consider correct, the Correct, because the populist and populism means people will care and actually demand change. But with the Fed in control the whole time, you weren't going to get crisis. You never got real change because you didn't, you know, there was no impetus to force that change. And so, um, you know, this is a period of crisis but crisis. Yeah, we always change. say nobody goes. Nobody goes to God on prom night, right? Correct. Crisis necessitates change, and so Correct. We, we need crises in order to. So, yeah, we started with philosophy for this reason, and this is a big picture, right? This is not. This is much more. Uh, you know, macro is not just uh, what's happening, in, you know, with housing or whatever. You know, there's a big, big, you know, bigger picture at play here, and I think particularly at times when. We're at the turning point, um, you know, in regime change, which I really do believe we're at. You know, inflation is the key. It's important to see the big picture. So yeah. we have a and question here world... from the audience. Sorry, Adam. Yeah, okay, you... go for it. Yeah. Yeah, and just the, what about the counter argument that inflation is driven by underinvestment in energy? Underinvestment. Well, that's, I mean, commodity inflation definitely uh, has, you know, ESG and, you know, the investment uh, in, 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 that type of, uh, you know, the worrying about uh, global warming, right, essentially, which is legitimate, but, you know, our ability to worry about those things at, at the cost of our existential kind of energy demands um, has definitely been a major, major driver of, of, of energy inflation. So I'm not, I'm not disregarding that. That's not, that's part of the story. But, uh, you know, our willingness to do those things is based on malinvestment, right? It's based on us uh, pursuing um, things that are, are not necessarily practical. Luxury right? beliefs, are, right? Exactly, exactly. So these things are connected. I 100% agree that, um, and again, I'm, I believe in ESG, I, important, I agree in the importance of it, and I, global warming is an existential threat to us longer term. But, um, you know, there are other solutions, and I'll point to nuclear, and this is why I think nuclear is a major, major mm-hmm. area of growth investment in the next, uh, you know, 20, you know, 15 years plus. Um, but, you know, investing in uh, wind farms and uh, solar 
which are you know very very inefficient even with the advancements that we've seen and that we're likely to see um, you know uh, will you know has led to a massive underinvestment which is which is only going to exacerbate the problems in the short term yeah I think the the argument it's I don't know if it's a counter argument it has been a malinvestment in in um, energies and we know that the cycle for reinvestment for having capex to that space doesn't take six months. It takes years. And so whatever the malinvestment was, now we got, yes, we're, we're going to start ramping that up, but we ain't going to see it for a while. And, and that's just one aspect, right? The energy aspect is one part of this very broad story that I think you've covered. So regardless, it is going to take a while. If, if the only thing that's causing this, which I disagree with, the only thing that's causing this is the uh, lack of investment in energy. No, and I, and I, again, talking about how things are connected geopolitically, it's not a surprise that, that yeah. Russia is doing what it's doing. It, it has very much seen this coming. It, it made Europe more dependent on it. Um, you know, it has, uh, it has seen the commodity edge that they have and the ability to, to create a massively uh, inflationary environment that ultimately creates more revenues for them um, in, a, in a situation where, you know, they would have enough strength to, to, to cap, capitalize here um, when the rest of the world is unwilling to maybe move because they're dealing with other populist internal problems. So, um, you know, again, you see geopolitical stress when people are, uh, you know, when there's an opening opportunistically, opportunistically, opportunistically yeah. yep. So th- these are all connected. Um, and, and I think it's important to see the bigger picture. I do wonder how Germany is, how quickly Germany is going to move back to nuclear. It, it doesn't seem like they're doing much at all, which is shocking. I mean, that's got to go on the list of like most historically stupid blunders. Um, you know, uh, again, I, I've always been, you know, my dad is a PhD structural engineer, designs offshore oil platforms. So I grew up in the energy space and he's been telling me that, you know, since I was five years old, uh, you know, that nuclear is the promise of the future. And it's crazy that people don't invest more in nuclear. Right. Uh, I mean, it's based on, you know, probably because big events happen and, and they'll stick in people's memories. But if you actually look at the impact of nuclear versus, uh, you know, even, even and solar and even uh, wind farms, like it's actually the impact environmentally is way less. Uh, they just, uh, you know, there's much emotion, more emotional kind of fear tied to when an event or thing happens. Um, and that's such a, such an unfortunate thing. I mean, we, when we finally commit to investing fully in nuclear, the efficiency, EOEI, uh, you know, energy on energy, uh, you know, uh, investment is 30 to one, um, you know, it, it will cause a, uh, you know, a broad uh, revolution in, in, in output, right. Uh, and, and lower cost to input. And, and uh, you know, it's a shame that it takes so long to invest and we've been so under investing in it for as long as we have. Yeah. You know, there's uh, another question here. Does the fed have any other option to control inflation besides creating or leading us into a recession? I hasn't thought here, but do you have? I mean, how do they reduce demand or increase supply, right? And that's you know for goods. Uh, you know, how do they reduce demand? Uh, you could argue, in, you know, reducing interest rates reduces some demand uh, for real estate and for some other, you know, maybe credit card debt, but it's relatively, you know, small compared to sending people checks, right? Um, and uh, and so that that will have some effect. The wealth effect, you know, reducing assets prices will uh, go to people. But again, who owns assets? Is it uh, the bottom fifty percent or is it the top? And so, you know, how do you take money away from? 
you know, the, the 20th, the 30th, the 40th, the 50th percentile. Um, it's hard with interest rates. It's hard if they don't assets, they don't own assets. How do you do that with monetary policy? So the only real answer, you know, is, is to increase demand. I not demand, I mean, to increase supply, um, to do a supply side answer. And that's what, you know, monetary policy is good for. Ironically, increasing a, a more, you know, increasing supply, uh, they should be doing more monetary policy, not less. Um, you know, they should be giving, uh, you know, the energy patch, unlimited zero interest loans, right? Uh, you know, nuclear, like, here you go, free money, build a nuclear plant tomorrow. Um, you know, that's really the answer. Now, that's completely the antithesis of what the Fed is doing or what they would ever consider doing. And they would be seen as, you know, um, you know, uh, completely uh, lax in their duties by doing it. But ironically, you know, you can argue that that's actually the answer. We need a supply side response. Um, and, and if they're not willing to do it, government needs to do it. Um, and I'm not sure that we're going to get that because people and populism is the name of the game. Well, the challenge is that you've got a government that has demonstrated an inability to act, right? And so, I mean, you can you can lower interest rates generally and incentivize supply in certain industries and while simultaneously penalizing demand in other industries by, for example, setting different um, rates on credit or setting co- different collateral thresholds on uh, on asset backed loans, et cetera. But all of that requires, you know, policy intervention and in many cases acts um, acts of Congress. And I mean, sadly, we're just not in a place politically where we're able to take the actions that are required to sort of more with, with more agility and um, more strategically provide incentives and credit and, and money where we need supply to increase while simultaneously managing supply and demand in other sectors that are clearly way out of equilibrium, right? I think, I, think, uh, I mean, I agree that up until recently, Right. There has been an inability uh, for Congress and for government to act. Uh, we did pass $12 trillion of fiscal stimulus. I wouldn't <laughs> say it's the right, you know, it was too much and too quick look, and the wrong way. Look ways. what it took. No, no. I, well, well I, I agree. But what, it, what drove it was, was the pressure that had already built. And I think there's way more pressure in the system, which is going to force more. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to. No, I think it's the right populist. Things. Yeah. It'll, it'll be. They're yeah. going to do everything wrong until they eventually get it right. Um, and, but, yeah. but that pressure will build and build and build until they do the right thing. Yeah, well, things that are, um, the words that are coming out are like subsidizing oil prices or having a plunge protection program where it gets too high, they're going to sell. You know, it's just so – the, the things I'm hearing are, are just things I heard in South America over and over, in Brazil and Argentina over and over again that didn't work just makes things worse. I just think from a, the perspective of what the Fed can do, it almost doesn't matter, right? Talking about the distribution of, of outcomes again. The, what people need to understand is that it, it was almost bimodal before. It was, are we gonna, is there liquidity? Is there going to be excess liquidity in the market? And is there, or is there going to be a lack of liquidity? And you were either all in on risk assets or out. Now this other dimensionality of inflation 
and populism and everything that we've discussed creates a broader array of outcomes that we need to prepare for that we haven't needed to prepare for for 40 years, right? The Fed, yes, will need to thread that needle of they do want to inflate. They do want to be below the inflation rate so they can inflate away certain assets, right? They they want to help those indebted people to not have as much debt. Um, And so there is going to be a, they want to let it run hot. Okay, well, can't let it run too hot. We talked about the reflexivity of that. We talked about that people started anticipating inflation. That's a problem. So they need to manage that. But there's, there's more room for error in that. As, as you do that, you're also going to possibly cause a recession. You don't want it to cause a, defla- uh, um, a depression, right? So it just means that there's more opportunities to make mistakes. And it requires investors to think differently about their portfolios. Just going back to like protecting oneself, right? How do you diversify your portfolio to deal with all of those outcomes? Well, now you have to deal with with commodities. You have to deal with option contracts that can provide protection in, in, in case it really, somebody really fucks up and there's a massive liquidity <clears throat> the gap down right so long volatility strategies you know commodities uh trading strategies that needs to be part of the portfolio and this is 40 ain't gonna do it for you anymore. yeah yeah no i I think you know we talked about supply and demand as it relates to uh goods and inflation right but uh important to think about the financial market and supply and demand uh in terms of how it's developed when you have 40 years of a massive monetary policy and uh bonds you know interest rates going down uh, secularly for 40 years while stocks go up. Obviously, that leads to a certain outcome. It's very easy for wealth advisors to not learn anything else or not sell anything else, but collect more and more assets by selling some 60, 40, 70, 30 you know, um, process because that's all that matters, right? It, it, it worked um, because we were in a secular time when that, that was, was dominant. But it's completely hollowed out active management. You know, if 68 to 82, like I said, markets normally went nowhere. Do you think passive investment was a thing from 68 to 82? People think it's like some technological revolution that we've, we've found passive investment. Passive investment never worked until 40 years ago. And it worked because of the Fed, because of monetary policy. Um, and why would you do active management? What's the point? It's expensive. It's not easy. You know, it's hard to scale. Why would you do any of that? Right. So back, back to uh, was, everything becoming easy. Everything was easy. Yeah, I talk what to my needed. investors all the time. And it's funny to a person, you know, that what, no matter who you are, people think they are investors. Everybody thinks they're an investor. Everybody <laughs> thinks that, that they know how markets work. You just buy it when it goes down and you dollar cost average. <laughs> and over the long run, you make money and you buy bonds too. And you do some asset, you know, diversification and that balances out. That's probably what everybody's been taught. And people get really confused when you all of a sudden say, wait a second, it's a little more complicated than that. Um, and so, you know, guess what? There are lawyers and they're, you're not going to go defend yourself in a court of law. You're not going to go do surgery on yourself. You know, there's a, there's a certain expertise and certain people are better at certain things because they have experience than others. You know, active management matters. Uh, you know, having an edge matters. But all that stuff has been hollowed out. There's almost very few entities that do that anymore and that do it in, with meaningful edge. And the value of that all of a sudden is coming to light again. And I think we're going to have a really a bull market in active management and broadly, uh, you know, uh, you know, different non-correlated strategies and, and different types of products. And um, I think I'll, I'll most wealth this. advisors and most people are woefully underprepared for, you know, um, 
what, what we're going to see uh, in the next 10, 15 years. I will say this. I think you're right. I think there has been a hollowing out of active management. But what there has been is advancement in certain regulatory laws that allow for like liquid alternatives, active ETFs, like the infrastructure has actually evolved and improved over the last 10, 15 years in a way that once active management comes into vogue, you will have a plug and play approach in many respects to do the right things for investors. I think advisors today have more tools at their disposal to do better than they certainly did 20 years ago. Right. Like 20, 30 years ago, you, you couldn't get a passive exposure to commodities in an easy way. You couldn't get the kind of uh, stacked return fund managers that we have been talking about in, in this podcast for the last six to nine months. Right. Where you get a, a beta, you put a dollar in, you get a dollar beta and then another dollar of alpha. Right. So you got capital efficiency within mutual funds, exchange rated funds and so on. So um, and, and, you know, funds that include option, actually proper option overlays that might make sense in this environment. So while indeed the options available are small currently, the infrastructure is great. And those options available are much better and much broader than what existed 20 years ago. So if any, if, you know, if advisors and investors want to do better, they want to thrive, not just kind of barely hold on to survive. You just need to like buckle down, act as if you didn't invest in the last 40 years, find out what people were doing in the 70s, and start doing more of that. Uh, you know, we just said there needs to be more of these podcasts. We need to do some some uh, wake up calls here. Yeah. No, I mean, well, we probably things. have three or four times as many advisors as um, the markets will support 10 years from now, right? I mean, it's just been, um, well, just like real estate agents, right? I mean, it's right. just been the most, the, the, the most incredible ride, right? As, You've got all these tailwinds. Your income grows eight percent a year, um, sitting on your hands. And if you know, if if you decide to to build a business as well, and it grows at, at an even more rapid clip, right? But it's um, yeah, it's been an easy ride, and and I think the next ten or fifteen years are going to drive a lot of um, those advisors who came into the market maybe in the in the early eighties and and uh, early nineties maybe in a retirement with really nice nest eggs <laughs> and, um, and, and they'll just generally be fewer and, and maybe, um, you know, ad- advisors with a different skill set who are better equipped to maybe navigate the more challenging years ahead. Yeah. But it's been all about low cost, right? Low cost investment, right? Uh, easy. Uh, Cause it's easy, right? Uh, you know, making money is easy. Um, I just think that uh, I think we're going to see a, a significant well, move away from it's that funny because it, people call that index investing though well, exactly. right and it wasn't ever index investing it was right. low cost investing right in a very big concentrated bet right it was a very active bet that investors especially in the united states have made in their portfolios which is a concentrated equity portfolio it's not even 60 40 anymore and like who does that it really is more like 80 20 i would say now and then the other 20 is pa- like private equity and all these other like equity-like income products. So, you know, it's, it's just been this uh, view that passive investing is the way to go. And in fact, what's worked is a, a, a concentrated domestic equity portfolio that is very low cost, right? It's just a bet that's really worked, an incredibly risky bet that's worked. And now diversification is back, active management is back, 
And like Adam said, I think there's going to be a, a concentrated group of professionals in this space that are going to advisors or, you know, even outsource CIOs and, uh, and the like that are going to, they're going to reap the benefits here. And some that are going to get hurt really badly. It'll be interesting to see. Jen, just before we leave, because um, we are running up against 90 minutes here, um, any broad statements on how investors might position their, their portfolios for the next five to 10 years, aside yeah, from buying well-run options strategies? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, have, I have three funds I'd like you to take a look at. No, uh, no seriously, though, um, look, uh, you know, we are in a, and this is not fear-mongering, just the truth is we are in a leveraged environment. Um, and, uh, you know, with leverage comes potential energy and fragility. I've been talking about this for some time. You know, this idea of kind of leptic, leptocurtic distribution, fat tails, um, you know, very few days go by. And this has been true for about two years where there's not some new greatest ever or biggest thing ever. And it's not just moves in the underlying indexes, it's rotations, it's moves in bonds, it's moves in uh, there are different outcomes. And it's, so it's a, it's a combustible, fragile environment. And so, you know, in that world, you want nonlinear things in the portfolio. Um, that doesn't just mean down in the market, that may mean, you know, uh, up in certain different products and, um, you know, the, the ability to, to bet not just linearly. So I do think broadly options and vol allow that opportunity, particularly long vol products, um, uh, and I'll, you know, that's kind of my, my long vol plug, which I think is, um, again, there's a reason why this is kind of uh, th- that vol compression, which we've seen with infinite liquidity, massive leverage when that liquidity comes off the table really creates, uh, you know, from a, it's like water sitting behind a dam, right? Um, you know, it can only kind of hold so far. There's like a, there's a potential energy there. So I think that's an important thing to have um, in a portfolio. Also, you know, uh, again, just highlighting 68 to 82 again. Um, in nominal terms, I think it's in, in policymakers' best interest to, to, to allow for the um, overvaluations and the, um, the malinvestment to come out of the market in a way that doesn't cause massive nominal losses and for more gradual, uh, you know, real losses to be um, kind of the way we get through this. Um, so I would expect much like 68 to 82 is when you look back um, over that, you know, over the next 14 years, uh, you know, 10, 14 years from now, you see asset values broadly where they are now in nominal terms, but in real terms, dramatically less. So volatility, you're going to get a lot of activity and volatility in between a lot of that crazy outcomes um, that you want to be able to use to improve your geometric returns and rebalance along the way. So important to watch your tails in a hedge, but I do think there's a reflexive nature over long term of, of us trying to manage, you know, policymakers and populism, and all those things to try and manage to um, stability. Um, and ultimately, um, you know, I think we will make it through this period. Um, but, uh, you know, you need to manage, uh, you know, inflation. You need to have commodities in the portfolio, have real discounted cash flows and and, and uh, entities that have access, not only uh, access to markets, but create their own liquidity so they can buy back their own stock and then buy when things, you know, malinvestment happens. I mean, sorry, creative destruction happens. They can buy the technologies and things. So big boats, uh, you know, be on that big cash flow entity. Uh, the value of money is going up. Um, you know, the value of cash flows uh, in the short term are going up. Sit next to government, 
you know, government is going to be, and you're going to enter a period of, between populism where government is the fountain of money. Uh, we, we go through ebbs and flows uh, historically of people believing in free market economics and uh, you know, capital markets as the best, most efficient allocator of capital. And then we go through periods where people say, well, that wasn't fair. You know, that didn't, wasn't the best way to allocate capital. Government step in and make it more fair. And so government is going to sit, you know, and, and what does government spend money on? Government spends money on healthcare. Government spends money on, on energy. Government spends money on defense. You know, what does government, on infrastructure, right? So what does government spend money on? Sit by the fountain of money. Where is it coming from? So sit there and I think you'll do a lot better. Uh, historically, that's been the case. Um, so uh, mind inflation, sit by that where the money's coming from and mind your tails. Love it. Amazing. All right. Jam, where can people find you? Not that they most need a reminder, but um, yeah, where can they find you in social media and at your day job? Yeah, so uh, on Twitter, I'm uh, at Jam, J-A-M underscore croissant. It's a play on my name. Um, you know, I'm fairly active, uh, a little bit less so than before, but I still try and get out there and, and, and give some free tips now and again. Um, we're also, you know, really, like I mentioned, long volatility is, is a great product for us and something that, um, you know, we've been, uh, you know, definitely putting out there. So, you know, we, uh, you can go to our, we did a long vol seminar, which I mentioned uh, just recently, we're doing more and more of those to kind of get educate people and get people aware of, of the importance of it. Um, you can go look at that webinar that we did yesterday, actually, at kaivolatility.com backslash resolve, um, or just go find us on our website, kaivolatility.com. Anytime you can schedule a meeting with, with me or our team uh, via the website as well. Fantastic. All right. Okay. Well, as yeah, as expected, this has been just incredible. Just great. Great awesome. way to start Thank the week. Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely enjoyed it. Uh, happy to be back whenever. Thanks for having me, guys. Right. Thanks, Jan. Great. Really appreciate it. Everyone have a great weekend. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Have a great weekend. Take care. Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit rationalmf.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University Podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. 
If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and see you next time.